Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Uh, where's Chi Meng and Sarah? I saw them earlier. Where are they? Uh, love you guys. They're, this is their last Sunday with us. They're moving up north. Chi Meng is going to study uh, up north in Fargo-Moorhead. I just want to say it's been such a, such a joy to get to know you guys over the last year. So may God bless you as you go your way. So if you know them or don't know them, make sure you say goodbye to them today. We're so thankful for you guys. Uh, Chi Meng's been a huge blessing uh, in my life over the last year. Friday mornings, there's a group of guys a little bit crazy enough to come over to my house at like 6.30 in the morning. We get into the Word and encourage one another, and he's there almost every week. Uh, so he's been a huge blessing to me. So I love you, brother, and I'm going to miss you guys, but thankful for all that the Lord is doing and is going to do through you guys. Um, why don't we pray and ask God to uh, speak to us that we might hear his voice, his word, because <laughs> believe me, you don't want to hear mine. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says. Thank you, O Lord, that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. You pierce to the very core of our being. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, that we might worship Christ, know Christ, love Christ, adore Christ. Lord, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. C.S. Lewis once wrote, do not imagine if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody, Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I want you to imagine a life that is unburdened by the own pressure that you put on yourself. Imagine a life that isn't concerned about what others think of you. Imagine a life where you don't even care what you think of you. Imagine a life where you're present with others, tuned in to what's actually going on in front of you. You're joyful. You're filled with thankfulness. You're acutely aware of God's presence and grace with you. You don't take everything so seriously because you take God so seriously. That sounds freeing. The first, uh, after I became a Christian, the first book that someone gave me to read was a little book by a guy named Andrew Murray called Humility. I think they were trying to tell me something. <laughs> he, uh, he, in, in that book, he, he wrote this. He said, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. And when I am blamed or despised, 
is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. I remember when Jesus saved me and I'm sure you can remember when he saved you too. I was humbled. I had lost all sense of dignity. I had nothing to boast in whatsoever. I was filled with thankfulness that Jesus would actually welcome someone like me. If you think about it, uh, this is really how uh, every Christian begins their journey with Jesus. I think by definition, uh, <laughs> we're those who readily admit that we don't have this thing figured out. We, we readily admit that, that we need a savior. No one comes into the kingdom of God on a winning streak. We come on our knees. We come needy, we come desperate, and we find Jesus to meet every need, and we're thankful. Funny thing happens, though. Uh, we're converted. Jesus saves us. We're humbled. <laughs> we, we really don't know anything, and you know, we're, we're, we're acutely aware that we bring nothing to the table, and we're just boasting in Jesus, right? We're telling everyone we know, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and they're like, what do you mean? And, She's like, well, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King. I, that's all I really know at this point. He saved a wretch like me. But then something interesting starts to happen. We, we might learn a few things. We uh, get a few experiences under our belt. Maybe Jesus does a bit of work in us and through us and this subtle thing starts to happen. We start to pretend like we don't walk with a limp anymore. We start looking down on those who sin differently than we do. We start to think that we actually... We actually have something to bring to the table and we think Jesus is lucky to have us on the team. <laughs> Pride seeps its ugly claws into our souls and we begin to use Jesus for our desires. We'll pray the words of John the Baptist, he must increase but I must decrease, but in our hearts we maybe sometimes mean something like he must increase and I kind of want to increase with him. I'd like to share a platform with Jesus. As he ascends, I can ascend too. I'll share the spotlight with him. Now that's the essence of pride, isn't it? We want to take the spotlight off Jesus and put it on us. This is pervasive. It's everywhere. Our culture is a proud culture and it's seeped into the church. As one author has stated, the Western culture has evangelized the church. So in our sermon text today, we see the disciples' pride come out in full force. And the reason is that they don't understand the cross, which means that they don't really understand who Jesus is. And yet, we see Jesus, the faithful king, pursue them and lead them through it. So it's been said that if you want to cultivate humility, the first step is to admit that you're proud. Now here's the thing. If you don't think you're prideful, that's the first indicator that you are. <laughs> so here's the big idea, the main point that I want you guys to walk away with today that we're gonna walk through. Uh, our pride will keep us from Jesus and at the same time, Jesus will keep us from our pride. So there's four traits of Jesus that, we, that, that expose and wither our pride in this text and they're the sufficiency of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus, the servant heart of Jesus, and uh, the squad of Jesus. I needed an S word, so that's what we're going with. So, <laughs> All right, number one, the sufficiency of Jesus. Look with me here at verses 37 through 46. It says, On the next day, 
when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. If you were here a few weeks ago or you remember uh, the last time we were in Luke's gospel, Jesus took three of his disciples up the mountain, Peter, James, and John. And and while they were up there, uh, Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. His glory was unveiled. It was majestic, it was wonderful, it was glorious in every way imaginable. And now, in our text today, it says on the next day they they come down from the mountain. And, And when they come down, they're met with this crowd and, and it's almost as though they're, they're leaving glory and coming back down to the dark, difficult, sin-sick world that we live in. And they're met uh, with a large crowd of people, and from the crowd, a desperate father cries out to him. This is a sad scene. You can hear the desperation in the father's voice, can't you? He has a son that is being absolutely tormented. He, he cries out, teacher, I beg you, look at my son. And then a little bit later, he says, I, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but, but, but they could not. Now, that's, that's interesting if you uh, think about it. Look back at verses 1 and 2 in, in chapter 9. We'll see why this is kind of odd. In chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says that uh, he, that is Jesus, he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to cure diseases. And then in verse 6, it says that they went out and proclaimed the kingdom of God and healed everywhere. They were quite successful with this short-term mission trip that Jesus sent them out on. And now, uh, just a short time later, the father comes up to the disciples and begs them to heal his son. Maybe, maybe the father heard about their ministry. Maybe there was a buzz around town about these, this group of 12 who could who could heal you, who could cure you. And so the father comes to these 12, and what do we find? The 12 are utterly incapable of doing it. What happened here? What was the shift? What's going on? I think Jesus tells us in his response, he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. In other words, they weren't trusting in Jesus to do what only Jesus could do anymore. They weren't trusting in his power and authority anymore. And you can see this subtle shift start to take place in them. If you look back at verse 10 in chapter 9, this is right after they come back from their little uh, short-term mission trip, I'm calling it, and they're reunited with Jesus. Verse 10 in chapter 9 says this. uh, It says, On their return, the apostles told him, that is Jesus, all that they had done. You see the subtle shift there? In other words, Jesus was doing great things through them, but they actually started to believe that it was them who was doing it. So now we see in this incident with the father and the son that that they are absolutely faithless. There's this progression we see. They move from depending on Jesus to then taking credit for what he alone can do to now they're acting independently altogether. 
Now hear me clearly. The, the, the point of this story isn't that if we just have enough faith and everything will be better. That if we just have enough faith that the deep sorrows and sicknesses of our life will suddenly be healed. That's not the point here. The point that Jesus is making is that we never outgrow our need of Jesus. We, we never go from needy to independent. We never go from, I, I cannot do this, to I actually got this. We need Jesus to do what only Jesus can do in every area of our lives. Now, now this rubs right up against our pride, doesn't it? Because, um, I mean, don't we want at least a little bit of the glory? Don't we want at least some applause or well-dones? If we're utterly aware of our need for Jesus in every area of our lives, then that means that we have nothing to boast about. Our pride hates that. But, but friends, this is where freedom really is. Look what happens next. Jesus says, bring your son here. Just think of the scene. There's a crowd. It's chaotic. This father's desperate, almost hopeless. And Jesus says, bring him here. Don't you love our Savior? Don't you love how he can just continually tells us to, to come to him over and over again? Don't you love how accessible Jesus is? He's not hiding I mean, honestly, who else would we ever want to go to anyways? Who else will deal with us as tenderly and, and gently and successfully as Jesus does? So I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure no one else can relate to me. Um, but Chelsea and I, we've been married for a few years, and um, from time to time, we have some communication troubles. <laughs> um <laughs> And I remember one time Pastor Kevin was, uh, he came over to our house and he was, he was talking with me and Chelsea, uh, kind of helping us sort through some of this stuff. And, and at one point he stops and he looks at me and he asks me, he says, John, can, can Chelsea go to Jesus with all her hurt, all her anger and frustrations, even imperfectly and sinfully, and Jesus will welcome her with arms wide open? I said, well, of course. And then he says, so she should be able to do the same with you then, right? You see, when we come to Jesus with our mess, he doesn't respond, I told you so. Get it together. He says, come to me and find rest. <laughs> you see, when I, I get into a lot of trouble when I start adopting a posture of Mr. Fix-It. I get into trouble for so many reasons. I mean, I mean when, I'm tr- when I am trying to fix every situation in front of me, right? That, that, that means I'm not actually listening to what's going on. It means that I don't actually see the problem for what it really is which means that I want to be the one who gets the applause and the accolades, which means that I want to be the one who gets the glory if something changes or shifts. This is just wrong on so many levels, right? Listen, we, <laughs> we aren't called to be fixes. We're simply conduits of the grace of God in one another's lives, period, end of story. Listen, Jesus alone is sufficient for these things. The father got it right in this story, right? He's crying out to Jesus. He's going to Jesus. He's bringing his his son to Jesus, the only one who can actually help him. There's, there's no better place than we can go ourselves or, or bring anyone else to other than Jesus. That's where we go. That's who we point to. Friends, in the same way that Jesus was sufficient for this family's greatest hardship, Jesus is sufficient for all your troubles. Jesus is sufficient for your greatest hardships. 
our deepest agonies and sufferings. He really is a friend of sinners and sufferers. This means that as we're serving one another and trying to remind one another of Jesus, we're going we're gonna to be spending a whole lot more time listening and in prayer than dishing out answers. We're going to be a lot more gracious and calm and patient than get your act together. Now here's the thing. Jesus intends to use us, right? He intends to use you for the spiritual good of others in such a way that he alone gets the glory. And I, I love what Paul Tripp says. This is always just ringing in my ears. He says, we're glory thieves. You know, he said, just like the disciples, right? That's, that's so us. He says, instead of living for the glory of God, we try to steal that glory for ourselves. We take credit for what only God could produce. We begin to learn that, uh, let me, have you guys ever been thrown into the deep end of some situation and you're just in way over your head? You just have no clue how, what the way forward is. And we're, we're just acutely aware that we don't have what it takes. It's in those moments that we realize that Jesus really is enough. It's in those moments that we realize that Jesus really is sufficient. It's, it's when we face our own insufficiency in the face for what it really is that we see that Jesus will actually come through. Uh, I love that, right? Um, last night, Chelsea was praying for me, and as she was praying, she said that She said, Lord, thank you that although we don't have the power to change even our own hearts, you do. Isn't that a good prayer? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. So we see Jesus, uh, this is amazing. So the disciples totally blow it. They're, they're a total mess. They can't do it. They've shifted from trusting in Jesus to independence and self-sufficiency. But we see Jesus leading the disciples out of their pride in this, in this situation in a few ways. Right? The first thing that we see that is helpful for the disciples is uh, <laughs> Jesus actually doesn't heal through them. Jesus heals the boy, but he, he doesn't use the disciples. What a gift of grace it is that Jesus doesn't act how we want him to all the time. Jesus is far more interested in our character than our accolades. Sometimes Jesus leads us not by using us if it would cause us more harm than good. And so, so I just, I mean, we can just stop and think for a second and think, God, why aren't you doing this? Jesus is probably doing something in you before he wants to do something through you. And that's a good thing. That's a gracious thing. Now Jesus leads the disciples in another way as well, Right? I love this. He keeps them in the game. He doesn't sideline them. The disciples blow it. They're not trusting in him. He even calls them faithless and twisted. And, and Jesus is saying, all right, I'm done with you guys. Now on to the next group of 12. No, he doesn't do it. He keeps them in the game. He's saying, come on, keep following me. Let's go. Keep going. So Jesus, I mean, man, we've, we blow it all the time, don't we? We're glory thieves all the time, aren't we? And Jesus is saying to us, you still belong here. You still belong with me. Come, I'm going to work this out as we go. We so often think that we have to get it together before we go with Jesus. Jesus is going to sort us out as we go with him. So we, we learn to embrace the sufficiency of Jesus as we come face to face with the fact that we are not sufficient for the mission at hand. But what's beautiful is that when we, th- is, is there, when we're not sufficient for what's going on in front of us, that we begin to see Jesus work in ways we would never imagine him. We see time and time again that he is working all things out according to his perfect plan. Now, his perfect plan doesn't always go the way we anticipate, does it? We see this clearly in the next section, number two, the suffering of Jesus. Look with me here at verse 43 through 45. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, 
Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. What a turn of events. Uh, The boy was set free and reunited with his father. Folks were celebrating and marveling at all that Jesus was doing. And then Jesus, just like on the switch of a dime, he tells the disciples again about his pending death. What a a buzzkill. Jesus just displayed that he has power and authority that no mere man does. And now he tells us that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. What's that all about? That's not how this is supposed to go down. The disciples are becoming increasingly convinced that, that Jesus is the one who is finally going to rid Israel, the people of God, from their oppressive rule of Rome. In fact, Jesus uses the name Son of Man for himself. Now, uh, if you were a Jewish person who were saturated in the scriptures, this would immediately trigger something in your mind, and it did with the disciples. It, it would have brought to mind Daniel chapter 7. Uh, In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, this is where the the title, the phrase, Son of Man, comes from. And it says says this. It says, There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's saying that he is the one who's going to be given an eternal kingdom, a dominion that will not pass away, glory that will be unceasing. People from every nation and language will serve him and the disciples They want to get in on this, and we should too. But what the disciples can't comprehend is the king going to the cross. They desire power and authority. They want Rome to be gone and done away with. The disciples don't comprehend what Jesus is saying here. They don't understand how the king could be killed. How in the world is this good news? They wanted the kingdom without the cross. Can I tell you something? Uh, a king without the cross is no different than any godless ruler who has ever ruled any nation. You see, the cross says that Jesus reigns with love and mercy. The cross says that Jesus reigns with grace and forgiveness. The cross says that Jesus didn't come to kill his enemies but rather be killed by his enemies and then rise up from the dead, conquering sin and death on our behalf. The cross kills our pride in so many ways. The cross says that we can't save ourselves. The cross says that we need saving, that we're actually the problem. We need saving so badly that the God of the universe, the the one that Paul read from Colossians 1, that God, he actually had to die for us. The cross says that we're not the heroes and there's only one. This also means that Jesus, not us, sets the terms for what the message is that we proclaim. We don't tamper with the message. We don't manipulate the message. We don't conform the message to what is palpable for people. We don't preach a health and wealth gospel. We don't preach uh, easy believism gospel. We don't preach that if you pray a prayer at one point, then you're good to go no matter what. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. 
at the end of Luke's gospel, after his death and resurrection, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, thus it is written that Christ, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The message that we proclaim is that Jesus is the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. He is Lord of all and commands all people everywhere to turn from their sin and trust in him. That he alone can forgive sins. We don't set the terms, we proclaim them. We don't change the message, we deliver it. Listen, the message that we proclaim in this culture is becoming increasingly unpopular. There is only one way for your sins to be forgiven. There is only one way to eternal life with God, and it is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the crucified King, period. You know, uh, as a student and young adult pastor, I have lots of conversations with uh, folks you know, in the next generation, which I'm so thankful for. I, I love it. And uh, as, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been going these, this, this ongoing theme that keeps reoccurring over and over and over again, the conversations that I'm having, sharing the gospel with uh, young, young folks who are wrestling with, you know, do they believe, do they not? And one of the ongoing themes I hear over and over and over again is, um, you know, I'll be sitting across and someone will say something like, I just don't feel this sense of guilt. And so, in their ears, the gospel's not good news if they don't feel guilty. And I want to say this really clearly. Just because you don't feel something doesn't mean it's not true. If you're here today and you don't identify with a Christian, reality is... that the wrath of God is being stored up upon you. You are guilty. You have broke God's law, even if you don't feel like you have. Our feelings don't determine reality. I mean, my goodness, how often have you woken up one day happy and you go to bed sad? What a mess our life would be if we let our feelings dictate what reality is. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ, the one whom we have offended, offers us terms of peace. You can flee to Jesus right now. Even if you don't feel guilty, you can come to him and say, Lord, I confess, I believe. Oh, God, help my unbelief. He will say, come to me. Oh, we're weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, flee to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Maybe you profess faith in Christ as a young person. You've walked away. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's offering you terms of peace right now. The king himself says you can be forgiven and free and everything will be different. So Jesus, the true king, he gains victory through suffering, which means Waterbrook Church, in Christ, life always comes out of death. Victory always comes out of hardships. We know when, when we enter into sufferings, Paul says that we know Jesus and the power of his resurrection as we share in his sufferings. Jesus gained victory as he was mocked and rejected, which, which means that, uh, that our re- our cult- the culture rejecting Christians is not our biggest problem. In fact, I love one of the, um, one of the ways that the, the early church uh, grew under heavy persecution uh, in the first few centuries of the church uh, was, was actually as uh, onlookers saw how terribly Christians were treated, but then they saw Christians loving those who were persecuting them. 
They were displaying the, the loving, forgiving heart of Jesus who, who loved their enemies and didn't retaliate. They didn't return evil for evil or hatred for hatred. They didn't uh, persecute those who were persecuting them. Their love for their enemies was attractive and people wanted to know who this Christ was. Friends, it doesn't matter. Listen, it does not matter what our culture says or thinks about us as Christians. We serve the king who gained victory through suffering who gained victory through sacrifice, it is just not about us, praise God. Which means that our greatest problem isn't that the culture is rejecting us as Christians. Jesus actually draws near to the outcasts and those who have been rejected. I actually think that as we become more and more marginalized, the church will grow stronger and stronger because Jesus loved those on the margin. Which brings us to the next trait of Jesus. Number three, the servant heart of Jesus. Let's read the next few verses here. It says, An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him on his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great so after <laughs> after jesus tells the disciples he's going to the cross and uh, they don't understand they start arguing with one another about who's the greatest this is ridiculous philip Ryken he says this commenting on this passage he said this dispute was foolish because like us none of the disciples were all that great in the first place Remember, these were men who could hardly stay awake to the end of a prayer meeting. Trying to determine the greatest disciple was a little, like, uh, was, was, uh, a little bit like trying to find the world's tallest pygmy. Even if it were possible to figure out the answer, it would hardly matter. It was foolish because the disciples were striving to reach the wrong end of the scale. Jesus had been telling them to deny themselves, but rather than carrying their crosses, they were trying to climb to the top of their spiritual ladder. Even, I love, even in the midst of their nonsense, look what Jesus does. He displays to them what his servant heart is really like. He takes a child, puts him by his side. Jesus brought the child in. He, he welcomed the child to himself. By Jesus taking a child to himself and, and telling us to do the same, he, he's telling us to gravitate towards and welcome those who have little or no status in society. Uh, here's what Michael Gorman, who's a, a New Testament scholar, he says this. He says, a child is not an example to be imitated, but a person to be taken care of. Jesus is not teaching a lesson about being childlike, but speaking to the issue of status. Children in antiquity had little status and significance, especially outside the Jewish world. The child represents an entire group of people, namely the weak, the needy, the less honored, and the marginalized. Jesus is totally redefining and reorienting our perception as to what greatness really is. The question is, will we let that land on us? Jesus is saying that true greatness is lowliness. That true greatness is caring for and welcoming those who have no place to go. This is the addicts, the fatherless, the widows, the orphans, the ethnic minorities. Luke's gospel, more than any other, shows the explosive heart of Jesus towards those who are welcome nowhere else. I used to be um, 
part of this ministry down in South Florida. And at the time that I was serving at this ministry, I was also working in a drug and alcohol rehab. And I love that. I made it my mission to get as many of those clients, many of the addicts, to church as I possibly could. Uh, and so on any given week, it was, it was wonderful. We had these big vans, and I would pile like 15, 20 of these, these young uh, you know, men into, into the van. We'd go to church and we'd roll up this one big group and it was almost like there was a cloud of cigarette smoke just hovering above us. <laughs> uh, these guys are reeking like cigarettes. They're cussing. They, you know, these guys have just not been in church for a long time, if ever. Um, man, it was great. They were hearing the gospel preached. They were in the church. They were right where they belonged. Um, and, you know, uh, you know they, would, they would come into the, the church and they would sit right in the front row and, uh, you know, everyone around them is, like, looking, and they can smell them and, you know, hearing them. And, uh, you know, that, I, I loved it so much. But these guys would get jittery. You know, they get a little restless. They can never really sit through the whole service, and so they'd be up and out, and they'd come back in the middle of the service and sit down and up and out, and, and you know, they start talking to each other. I mean, it, to be honest, they were, like, super distracting. Um, I'll never forget one of the leaders... Uh, said to me, he approached me after one of the nights, uh, one of the services was over at night, and, and he told me, uh, he said, John, if we want to keep bringing the addicts to church, they got to sit in the back corner. They wanted to marginalize the marginalized. Wanted to push out the already outcasts wanted to make them more convenient, more like us. Oh, friends, this breaks Jesus' heart. We can't go on neglecting the outcasts. There is no outcast in the kingdom of God. Everyone is welcome. Everyone belongs. Everyone has a seat at the king's table, period. Now, we're pleading with God here at Waterbrook, that he would continue to make us a multi-ethnic church in the middle of this uh, predominantly white, middle, upper class Victoria, and, and not because it's trendy or whatever, not because the, the culture is suddenly concerned about racism, because this gets right to the heart of who our God is and what he has done. Oh, man, Jesus ransomed people on that cross from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and he said, you're my family. You're welcome here. Friends, there are people in our backyards who feel totally out of place because they don't look like I do. And that's a problem. There's always a place at the table with King Jesus. Will we welcome the needy and the broken? Yes, by the grace of God, we will. These doors are wide open who feel like, they're, like they don't belong anywhere else because Jesus welcomes everyone, which means that we should too. Jesus came for the least, the last, and the lost. His is a deeply servant heart. Friends, our pride will convince us that somehow we belong and others don't. Aren't you thankful that Jesus invited you in? My goodness, how well did we fit the mold before Jesus went to work on us? Jesus welcomed us when we had nothing but our sin to offer. How do we forget this? 
Jesus is reminding us right here, don't forget, true greatness remembers who he really is, who he really is and who we really are. When we remember that we are needy and broken ourselves, we naturally gravitate towards those Jesus loves. And this brings us to the last trait of Jesus, the squad of Jesus, as I'm calling it, the people of Jesus. Verse 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. The disciples are on quite the winning streak, aren't they? I don't even, under, I don't even understand how this is an answer to what Jesus just said. Jesus is like, all right, guys, uh, let me tell you what true greatness is. Uh, let's go care for those who aren't just like us. And then John responds. He says, all right, got it. There was this guy over here who's not doing it like us, and let's shut him up. What? <laughs> right, Jesus is, make, Jesus is making a statement that we really need to hear. Genuine gospel ministry, valid gospel ministry, kingdom advancing ministry takes place in and through people who don't do it just like we do. And we should celebrate that and thank God. I want to clarify something here, right? What Jesus is not saying is that doctrine doesn't matter. Right? This, guy, this guy was doing ministry in Jesus' name. He knew who the true king was. He wasn't a false teacher. He had different methods. In a podcast uh, that I was listening to recently with Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry, uh, Ray Ortland, he's a guy that I like, he, he recently said that he was confirmed as an Anglican recently. Uh, and Sam asked him, what, what has changed and what hasn't since you've been confirmed Anglican? And I love his answer. It's really, really good. He says, well, what hasn't changed is my identity has not changed. I'm not an Anglican. I'm an Anglican Christian. The word Anglican is an adjective. The word Christian is a noun. And that's my identity. So what hasn't happened, Sam, is I have not distanced myself from other believers. All Christians, we share the same identity in Christ. And then the various groups we're part of are places where we can just sort of enter in and get really comfortable and go deep and become productive long term. So if we understand our various locations within Christianity in a healthy, gospel-centered way, we feel simultaneously linked profoundly and joined and united with all Christians everywhere and happily located and fruitfully located right where the Lord wants us to be within that totality. I love this, right? So what's he, what's he saying here? He's saying the gospel says that we are deeply united to all Christians everywhere because we're deeply united to Jesus. And we have the freedom and flexibility to go really deep with a specific group of Christians so that we might have long-term faithful and fruitful ministry. This is the beauty of the local church. Now, there's all sorts of conversations about different denominations and doing it this way and that way, and we're right and they're wrong. Friends, the gospel says that we actually don't have to solve any of that. We're deeply united with every true believer, and we can go really, really deep with the believers that God has put us around. We can do fruitful, faithful ministry, right? This means that those who don't do ministry like us, uh, they're not a threat at all. They're serving and doing gospel ministry in a way that advances the kingdom in ways that we alone can't. Waterbrook, we're not trying to build our own brand. God, God help us from trying to build our own brand. That's dangerous, right? We don't want to for a second think that we have some corner on the market. It's ridiculous. 
Right? We live in a world that is dominated by the idea uh, of marketing. And with social media, each of us now becomes our own personal marketers to create our own little brand. Right? This breeds and feeds the idea of self-importance that ends up absolutely crushing us. Right? Our, pl- our pride flares up. We want to be the center of the attention. We want to say, we alone are doing this right. <laughs> and then we realize that the burden is far too heavy. Can I just tell you that there is so much joy and freedom in being a nobody? Kent Hughes says this. He says, to put aside personal hopes for success and to surrender to God's plan is the way of jubilant worship, obedient service, and utter freedom. We're not competing. We aren't trying to secure our own sense of success. We can trust God totally and completely. I love what uh, J.D. Greer, he's a pastor down in South Carolina, he tells this story. Um, he was praying and praying and praying for revival in his city. He wanted to see folks come to Jesus, the Spirit come, the gospel going forth with power. And he says he prayed for a long time for this. And then the Lord spoke to him one day and said, um, would you be happy and celebrate if I did it in the church next to yours but not yours? <laughs> That's a heart-searching question, right? Listen, do we want the kingdom to advance no matter what, or do we really want our church to grow no matter what? Now, don't hear me wrong. We're thankful that the church is growing. That's a good thing. We're super, super thankful that, that all of you are coming here to Waterbrook. We, we, are, we are praising God for that. But what I am saying is we're simply not competing. There are all sorts of churches around here are doing good gospel ministry, and we should be celebrating that. We should be cheering them on. We should be praying for them regularly. On our drives over to church, why don't we pray for the churches that we pass? Ask God to pour out his spirit in fresh power. Right? We, along with every other Christian church, are ultimately about the kingdom of God. Jesus came announcing the good news that the kingdom of God has come. On the cross, Jesus was enthroned as a crucified king, and right now, he stands as Lord and king over all. He is building his kingdom. The gospel is advancing. The nations have been purchased, and we will worship at the throne of Jesus forever and ever. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says this, that Jesus was slain, and by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and he He has made us a kingdom of priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth with him. Friends, I know it doesn't always look like the kingdom is advancing, but churches keep being planted. People keep coming to faith in Christ. The captives are being set free. The prisoners are being released. Sin is being forgiven. Jesus Christ is honored and worshiped as Lord in all our neighborhoods and the nations. Praise be to God. So we've seen that Jesus is sufficient for all things. We never outgrow our need for him. We've looked into the sufferings of Jesus, that he died that we might be saved. We've marveled at the servant heart of Jesus, that there's no outsiders in the kingdom of God. And we've looked at the the squad of Jesus, people from every tribe, tongue, language, people who do ministry like us and unlike us. Brothers and sisters, It's all about Jesus. He is the answer to all our pride. So in light of all this, let's commit to pray for and pursue these four things. First, let's pray, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. When we get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, man, we we cannot be focused on ourselves. Our greatest need and joy is that we would see Jesus. 
Let's also pray, Lord, show me my pride. Now, pride is blinding in such a way that we ourselves don't see. I love what Tim Graff always says. He says, pride is like having bad breath. Everyone else knows you have it, but not you. (laughs) So let's pray, God, show me my pride. Thirdly, let's pray, Lord, humble me by your gospel. It's the gospel that ultimately will, will bring about humility, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and in our place. And lastly, let's pray, God, build your kingdom. Build your kingdom here, no matter the cost, no matter what that means. If you want to do, use us for a big way or a small way. Oh, God, build your kingdom in Victoria, in Carver County, Minnesota, and to the ends of the earth. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your grace and power. Thank you, O Lord, that you welcome us in, prideful and all. Thank you, Lord, that you will deal with us according to your kindness. And Lord, we do pray, we plead with you, show us your glory and build your kingdom here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.